I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, folks. This is Rick Wilson. And welcome to The Daily Beasts, the new abnormal. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, a left-wing pundit and an editor-at-large at The Daily Beast. I'm also an editor-at-large at The Daily Beast, a former Republican political strategist, best-selling author, and full-time troublemaker. We're here to have fun, sharp conversations with some of the smartest people in media, politics, and science that help make what's happening in the country and the world clearer. We take the issues seriously. Ourselves, not so much. Our world has been turned upside down. On The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and how we get ourselves out of it. Rick Wilson. Molly John Fast. Did you know that impeachment is the zenith of cancel culture? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. That's what Matt Gates says. You'll remember Matt Gates. I don't think Matt Gates actually knows what the word zenith means, but that's another <laughs> story for the day because of the indifferent public education of the North Florida panhandle. I don't actually, Mike might have gone to private school. Matt Gates grew up in the Truman Show house. <laughs> All right, so. A lot of exciting stuff happened this weekend, the largest of which is that your old boss, uh, shoe polish for hair dye. Rudolph Wilhelm Giuliani. (laughs) That's right. Is going to need to find $1.3 billion. I think Rudy will have no problem with that whatsoever because Donald Trump is notoriously prompt in paying his lawyers. Yeah. Takes care of Trump can lend it to him, right? Right, sure. I mean, he'll just... Like, sign Rudy onto his D-Bank credit line. That's what I was thinking. Should work it all out pretty quickly. If you haven't read this filing, it is quite something. Quite something. It's delicious. It includes such things as, also during that defamatory podcast, Rudy claimed supplements would cure his viewers' achy joints and muscles and implored them to stop wasting money and switch. He instructed them to use his name when ordering and said they could get a second bottle free if they ordered now. Thank God for the lack of painful joints, because when you're in the joint, the last thing you want is painful (laughs) joints. I'm Rudy Giuliani, former celebrity mayor of New York and now resident of Sing Sing. You think he'll go to jail, or you think he'll just... Nah, he's not going to go to jail. He's going to get dinged by these people. They're going to try to drag it out. Rudy's going to try to drag it out as long as possible. Blah, 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 blah. And what's going to happen is is that at the end of the day, all of the bullshit from Rudy... All of the all the you know crazy things he said in court for Trump, he's going to try to excuse it as I'm representing my client, therefore I'm not defaming anybody. I'm taking a stance from for my client's interests, and he'll settle. He'll have to write some suck up letter, and he'll have, he'll, he'll have to post it online somewhere, and he'll put it in a medium post. <laughs> I was wrong about Dominion, and I guess I'm not. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of people in this lawsuit who seem like they're about to get sued. Yeah. Lou Dobbs. 
Blue Dogs. I mean, a lot of them already, like OANN and Newsmax, they've rolled. Right. But is it, have they rolled enough? Right. They're doing with the, what, what I call the meeting the minimum standard. They're rolling and saying, well, we made a mistake and we regret the mistake. And we are so sorry if anybody was offended by our mistake, where we said that a legitimate American technology company uh, was secretly being directed by the astral projection of zombie Hugo Chavez to <laughs> steal the election from Donald Trump. I mean, it really, though, just like when Alex Jones had to admit in the court filing that his persona is bullshit, that it's an act, that it's fake, that it's all a big show. That's what's going to happen here. They're going to say, well, we were just faking it. It was all bullshit. You, everybody, everybody else, we were just having fun. We were just, we were just fucking around. And I have to say, I don't think that argument's going to work. I don't think it's going to work at all. <laughs> you know what's interesting about this lawsuit is that Tucker, they use Tucker Carlson statements that there's no there there to then attack um, Sean Hannity and to ask why Fox News gave Giuliani a platform on Sean Hannity's show, even though Tucker Carlson had said it was a scam. Well, Fox is a company equipped with wise and yet evil attorneys. They understand the jeopardy that this shit is, that this shit now represents. I promise you at some point at 2.45 in the morning, they will have a tape from Lou Dobbs saying, <laughs> although this president was the greatest president of all time, of any time in any universe or any multiverse or any other conceivable configuration of realities, I was not fully accurate in my statement about Dominion, and I regret it. And that'll be it. That'll be it. It'll, it'll, it'll be like, you know, the, the most elliptical and, and, and obscured comment they can manage. And the fact of the matter is, Molly... Dominion has them all by the balls. Yeah, pretty great. I really, really hope they take a lesson from Peter Thiel and Gawker, because this makes Peter Thiel and Gawker look like the most, I mean, it really was Hulk Hogan, but it was Peter Thiel sock puppeting the whole thing. Right. This makes the Gawker case look like a little white lie. I mean, they were running on their, on their multivariate platforms on Fox, story after story. It was stolen. It was rigged. It was hacked. It was stolen. It was rigged. It was hacked. And they knew it. They knew from the beginning it was bullshit, but you know, we have now a media culture on the right that I'm going to own the libs. Who fucking cares what I have to say? <laughs> you know, and the guys that write at Fox Digital were amplifying it, and and all these people were putting this out there, and it was being shared all over Facebook, and all these Trump people who, when they knew it was a fraud, um, was, I think around November 4th, they knew this was a fraud. Can we talk for a second about Fox News? So Fox News has sort of seen its dip and seen that it's losing market share to OAN and to Newsmax. And so they've decided to fire everyone who did actual news. There was a piece in the Daily Beast on Friday about this. Yeah. Look, when you lose guys like Bill Salmon and Chris Starwalt, those are news division guys. These are the guys who did the decision desk, right? Right. They did the decision desk, which the decision that they called was correct. And yeah. it was factual and it was not premature and it was not out of bounds and it was not in any way some speculative walk that suddenly affected the rest of Donald Trump's political chances. It was done. Arizona was in the bag. It was in the sack. It was over. No matter how much recounting they were going to do, it was just masturbation at that point for the Trump people. Okay. It was just, it was just spinning the wheels. So Fox is firing guys like that and keeping people who are to put it in the mildest possible terms, bug fucking sane. I've never heard that. <laughs> yes, continue. 
crazier than a sprayed roach, as we say down south. Yes. But these these people are that they're keeping are complete loon sauce. I mean, they're just nuts. And so, you know, they've decided to go all in basically on the QAnon Josh Hawley uh, wing of the GOP, which um, comprises now essentially a slurry of conspiratorial hoo-ha and right. whining Don't, about And media. Ted Cruz is in there too, right? Oh, of course. Lion Ted? Lion Ted. As, and I'm going to remind people of this till the, till the sun cools. There are two types of people in the world. People who hate Ted Cruz and Ted Cruz. <laughs> and so, well, I assume Heidi doesn't hate him, right? I wouldn't make that mm. assumption in the slightest. <laughs> <laughs> Is the Lincoln Project going to go after Lion Ted? Break some news here. We always go after Lion Ted. And no, well, listen, we're going after Josh Hawley with the encouragement of and I kid you not, we had no idea how many people we had in Missouri on our lists. We, I mean, we, I guess we knew somewhere in the data system, but people were emailing us like, please help us take him out. He's a crazed fascist. The guy's a lunatic. And all these people are calling us with the, or, and emailing us with these stories of knowing Josh Hawley when he was young. I'm like, yes, let's collect all these together. <laughs> but oh, now Josh, Josh Hawley makes, makes Tom Cotton look like a normal senator. You know, when Jim Lankford and Tom Cotton are the center right of the GOP, I mean, it, it really puts it in a perspective, you know, and suddenly when you've got Rand Paul being the Ted Cruz of Rand Paul's, shifting the dialogue into the crazy zone, to me, it tells you a lot about what's going to happen in the immediate future. There will be a division in the caucus about survival in 2022 with this map. And I want to explain to everybody really quickly why Trump is doing the Patriot Party and talking about doing it, there are two reasons. First is the usual scam, the usual, like, give me your money. You know, Trump basically telling grandma, send me the last of that disability check or communism will win because <laughs> he wants to make money. He needs to make money. His business model now is, is, is ripping off old people, just to be clear. But the real reason he's talking about the Patriot Party is not to get rich off of it. It is to blackmail the Republicans into not voting to convict him. And every one of these guys is thinking, oh, man, they're going to run a third-party guy in the race. It'll pull off 10%, 15% of the crazy vote, and I can't beat a Democrat. Now, I, for one, welcome the Patriot Party. <laughs> I look forward to a party that believes in the things the founders believed in, mostly a global conspiracy of child cannibal predator pornographers who work <laughs> out of a pizza restaurant in, man in, in, in Washington, D.C., Northwest. With no basement. With no basement, right, sure, of course. And, of course, extra-dimensional lizard time-traveling people who are secretly in league with the queen and her heroin dealing who it just work makes from sense. the moon base. Yes. Is there? Did you get the weather machine in there? Because isn't there a weather machine? Only the Chinese have the weather machine, Molly. Come on, okay. keep up. I, Haven't you I'm got trying. your payment from CCCP Inc. this month? So do we think that that very reason is why Rob Portman has decided he's not going to run for re-election? Welcome, Senator Jim Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> that is going to be the ugliest he's Senate small, race. He's sweaty. He can't wear a jacket. He's Jim Jordan for Senate. He's like a tiny little doll. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining Jim Jordan's like intro speech. To, to running for Senate. I've wrestled with this problem for a long time. Oh, Jesus. We knew this was coming, I've spent right? sweaty, sleepless nights thinking about how hard it will be to be in the U.S. Senate, how very, very hard it will be. Uh, why do we let him do this? Why? Why do we do this? Jordan, very good. He'll pin down our problems. 
Oh, you never don't encourage him, Jesse. Just makes it worse. <laughs> He'll get a grip. <laughs> no, stop it. The ads are writing themselves. <laughs> That's going to be the ugliest Senate race ever. You may open the door there for a moderate. And again, please, for the love of God, my Democratic friends, please, please, just I beg of you to, to believe me for 30 seconds here. Ohio is not woke. It's not so. It's not you, woke. No. No, Ohio is so not very woke. Ohio is not even blue. It's pretty red. Ohio is red and trending redder to be. I mean, except for Sherrod Brown. Right, but you know, Sherrod Brown is is already in the Senate. But you you could use a Sherrod Brown style, a Tim Ryan or a Sherrod Brown style guy would have a chance of crossing some of that working class white vote that has drifted between between that that over time has drifted between from Reagan to Clinton, to Bush, to Obama, to Trump, back to Biden. There will be a temptation, and I mean this only in the most constructive and professional sense, there will be a temptation to find somebody that meets all the woke tests, but it's Ohio. And I beg of you to believe me that Ohio is it's a very red, red state. Very red. redder. And is also very red and also Republican. There's a lesson to be learned, which is that people love Sherrod. And Sherrod is actually quite progressive, but he is a product of Ohio and popular in Ohio. He is a product of the sort of human-centric progressivism that is about jobs and about human dignity and about human worth and those sort of things. And he's less about, you know, uh, arguing about more esoteric issues and and about things that would countervail against victory in a place like Ohio, which is a red industrial state. Can we talk for a minute about the idea that Republicans love culture wars because that is easier to win than not giving people money? All the Republican Party has right now are three iterations of the culture war question. So we can talk about Josh Hawley on the cover of The Post today. Sure. I'm going to get to that in one second. So conservatives lost two of the most fundamental social battles of the last 50 years. Abortion, which um, they fought to a draw on abortion, okay? America wants to have the right to, to, for a woman to have the right to choose. That's just it. That's where America's at. However, America's not like, yay, abortion, it's so awesome. You know, so they fought that to a draw, okay? Right. They lost the battle over gay rights and gay marriage. Yeah. Lost it. Just, Just like got fucking hammered on it. Blew them out. And they lost the battle over marijuana. So now what's left in the social conservative space is a sort of cultural anxiety that brown people or smart people are going to take away their rights or or their church or their privileges in some way. And so constantly iterating back on the, you know, the culture war game has become signified by, oh, the media is so against us. It's the media. Oh, God, the liberal, libtard, liberal media. And they, they, no, no philosophy is more pendant in the Republican Party's mind today than hatred of the news media. There right. are entire subcultures and sub-industries of the conservative media apparatus that are dedicated only to saying, libtard media, libtard media, liberal media, the liberal media, liberal. <laughs> they they can't stop themselves. They they never ever get away from it. Okay. If you ask a Republican now to defend Donald Trump, I promise you, in the first two minutes, if they can speak that long in defense of him, they will say, "And the media is, or but the media does, or the media, liberal media." 
They can't stop it. It's a, it's like a twitch reflex. Okay. The other part of the culture war thing is aggrievement and whining and snowflake. And that's where Josh Hawley comes in. And, and I, I, yeah. Oh, this, the New York Post this weekend was the absolute pinnacle of the very white, downy, white, snowy top of Mount Snowflake. Um, <laughs> I'm being Oh, I can't, I can't say a word except on the Senate floor where I was elected by the people of Missouri. I can't and say Fox a word News. except for on Fox News, the largest cable network in the country. I can't say a word except the New York Post, which is millions of people every day. I can't say a word except on Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and every other goddamn platform in America. But what you should be saying, Josh Hawley, you fucking snake, is this. I apologize to the family of Officer Brian Sicknick for having incited a crowd which murdered him. And four other people. So Josh is not muzzled. He just lacks the moral fucking compass to speak the truth about what he is. He and also Ted Cruz have taken the wrong message from Trumpism, which is they have said, oh, wow, these little culture wars work. Mm -hmm. And conservative grievance is something the base enjoys. And so because Trump is no longer on Twitter and Trump has sort of left this vacuum in the ecosystem, we can pick up the slack and ride it to 2024 Republican nomination. Yes, they're going to say to themselves and to their donors, hey, you know, Trumpism had some rough edges. We can smooth those off. We can run it through the car wash. We can buff it out a little bit. We can uh, put the fun in fascism. We, right. By the way, speaking of the fun in fascism, you can't you can't spell dynasty without nasty. And speaking of which, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is going to run for governor of Arkansas. Just throw That's the throw. That's right. There. Now, I will say there are some really, really terrible female governors in the South. Yes. So she will no, not be North, alone. North Dakota is pretty far north. Well, but Kay Ivey. <laughs> Oh no, terrible. But I mean there are some really there are some really bad red state governors. So it doesn't seem I mean, will, is she worse than her father or is she about the same? She is wildly more egregious than her father. Okay? Ooh, tell and us I why. hate Mike Huckabee. Yeah, I hate I him too. I fucking hate Mike Huckabee. I don't say that at a lot of people in politics, honestly. I just So you're not going on his Jesus cruise? Yeah. Is there a Jesus cruise? He has Jesus, He has trips to the Holy Land. How do you not know about this, Rick? Because this may accelerate my timetable for the Lincoln Project Submarine Warfare Division. Yes, it <laughs> needs to happen now. Somebody said the other day on an interview, so what is your big goal for the Lincoln Project? And I deadpanned that I'm like, a nuclear weapons program. And the guy's like, <laughs> well, that's a bit, what? what? <laughs> See, I know you, so I know you're not actually kidding. <laughs> It runs in the family. <laughs> Rick, is your hatred for him because he's just so much more of a grifter? Like, I always think of, like, when he wrote that book about how we have to eat healthier and he lost all this weight and then no one latched onto it and he decided, fuck it, got to own the libs that I got fat again. Oh, I love that. If you want to talk about an opportunist, Mike Huckabee was like 47 different flavors of Republican during the course of his life. But he was never smart. I would say Mike Huckabee falls in that category of sort of crafty. And we'll see how Sarah goes. I think, you know, she's got a very good chance of winning in Arkansas because it's, you know, the Arkansas frontier province. And name ID is magical, sadly. But the idea that anyone survives Trump and, and becomes to elected office who isn't named Trump is sort of disturbing. What do you mean? Do you really think that we should have a Huckabee representing an entire United State? Well, I mean, it's Arkansas. It's like a state. 
It's still so everyone's going to get mad at me that I just said that. It, 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 you know, Arkansas did bring us the Clintons. I mean, it wasn't always so Listen, rad. I, I actually think Arkansas is a very beautiful state. It's a very nice. I state. love it. I'm yeah. moving there. What's the city there? <laughs> there it is, right is, there. There it is. There, is there like a Boston there? Hot Springs, Fayetteville. Yeah, it's not happening. All right. I didn't think so. Every day we learn more about tr- how Trump was planning a coup. Yeah, every day. Every day we get another read on the ways and the and the depths to which they were sinking in terms of how a fairly small group at the end, because everyone else basically fled or hid, was trying to tweak the machinery of government, if you will, and to make the... For instance, to make the Justice Department fire the AG and then sue over the, the over the, the election results. Imagine if it had been close. Well, you know, I have to say this, and I'm I'm, I'm going to for a second back out of all the sarcasm and and humor for a second. I analogize this to a meteor passed very very close to the Earth, a big one, the kind that would like kill the dinosaurs level, right? And we saw it up in the atmosphere, and it burned a big streak across the atmosphere that barely missed us. The more we learn, the more we know that that meteor was a lot closer than we thought, a lot bigger and more dangerous than we thought, and that only by the grace of God do we avoid a calamity. I, mean, I, I keep coming back to like the moment, the inflection points. It's like if Officer Goodman had not led those assholes to the left and not the right down that mm-hmm. hallway, what, what would have happened? Yeah. I mean, what what would have happened if Donald would they Trump have hung had Mike Pence? the control of the DOD if he thought about it? a year ahead of time and put Cash Patel and all those scumbags over there. If they yeah. had managed to get their guy installed at the National Security Agency and puts people over in charge of the CIA and 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 fired the AG and put in this compliant guy who was going to do whatever they wanted. I mean, what if all I mean you play out all those scenarios and we really, really dodged a bullet. And the important thing here is that everyone involved in this must be held accountable. I will say it until I'm dead. Adam Gentleson is the former Deputy Chief of Staff to Senator Harry Reid, the author of Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate. He's going to talk to us today about the filibuster and why it should go. So you work for Harry Reid, and there you sort of developed a feeling about the filibuster. Is that correct? And will you explain? When I got to the Senate with Senator Reid, working for him in in 2010, I I knew the basics about the Senate. I'd read Master of the Senate, you know, and and I knew that it was supposed to be this place that was slow, that was deliberative, that, that was frustrating in, in all these different ways. And the filibuster was, was a big part of that. What came to be clear, though, over the course of the subsequent period of the Obama administration was that you're told that there's wisdom in the Senate's deliberative nature, that there's wisdom in its delay uh, in how long it takes to do everything, and that there's wisdom in the filibuster in the sense that it brings people together, that it forces Democrats and Republicans to find consensus, you know, in all these very wise-sounding things. And what became painfully clear during the time I was there was that there is no wisdom in any of this. There is no wisdom in the delay. There's no wisdom in the Senate's gridlock. Uh, and there's no certainly no wisdom in the filibuster, at least in the way it's deployed today. And, you know, part of that is that the Senate, the, the filibuster has become something very different um, than what it was supposed to be. In the book, I talk about how it was never really supposed to be part of the Senate in the first place, and we can we can talk more about that too. But but just accepting for now that it, that it has become a part of the Senate, and it is sort of one of the things that's inextricably identified with the Senate, 
popular imagination. When we think of it, we think of Jimmy Stewart. We think of, you know, the underdog holding the Senate floor and sort of a feat of strength, you know, and, and endurance trying to hold back the forces of, of corruption. But that's not what it is today. Uh, first of all, you definitely don't need to speak on the floor. Uh, and second of all, all it does is uh, raise the threshold for passage on any bill from the majority where it was for the vast 200 years of the Senate's existence to a supermajority. And that allows a minority to block, a numerical minority, to block anything that the Senate wants to pass. So where there used to be debate, where there used to be you know people explaining their positions in, out in public view, where there used to be an open exchange of views, now there is silence. The number of votes it takes to pass a bill goes from a majority up to a supermajority with the sending of one email, and then most bills fail to clear that threshold. And so, you know, not only does it not live up to its myth, in many ways, it runs counter to its myth. It is it is a place where good ideas go to die, and these things that are sort of supposed to define it as the citadel of wisdom are actually the very things that are causing it to be uh, the, the foremost cause of gridlock in our federal government. Okay, so reconciliation is what they did during the Trump era where they could pass a bill with 51 votes. Right. Can you explain to me how you get reconciliation and if you have reconciliation, why you even have a filibuster and why don't people just use reconciliation for everything? So reconciliation comes from the 1970s. It came from the 1970s. It is uh, was established because uh, the Senate decided it needed to start passing uh, budgets um, around then. This was at a time when the workload was expanding, where the size of the federal government was getting much bigger. They were inventing new agencies like the EPA. And so they decided that, that as the normal course of business, uh, budgets needed to be passed. And so as part of that process, they created this special track for legislation that is called reconciliation. And so it is a special. what it does is it allows any bill that complies with a very strict set of rules to go around the filibuster and come straight to the floor at a simple majority threshold. So if you go through reconciliation, at no point in the process do you need to clear 60 votes. You never need to clear anything more than a majority. So why don't they use reconciliation for everything? Because the rules that restrict its use are very tight. What happened after it was created, Robert Byrd, former Senate Majority Leader, so he was very upset because he, he immediate, it immediately started to be abused in exactly this way. People immediately started using reconciliation for everything. So they were like, oh, great, we can just, you know, go, go use the track. Yeah, so he, so he created this, this restrictive set of rules, and it's people refer to it as one rule, um, but it's called the Bird Rule. And basically, it is a very narrow test um, that determines whether a given policy complies with what the purpose of reconciliation is supposed to be. And so the effect of that is to restrict it to primarily items that have a budgetary impact. So, you know, that's pretty broad. You can you can pass a lot of economic policies right. through that definition. And so And that's how they pass the tax cut. Exactly. And so that's why they're able to do the tax cut through it. You know, they're even able even able to do things like opening Anwar up to drilling through this because, you know, you can be creative about how you prove your budgetary impact, but that creativity only extends so far. So so it is an option for Democrats for things like COVID relief, uh, potentially a lot of infrastructure, maybe minimum wage increase, and that's all great. The problem is it is definitely not a possible path for things like democracy reforms, civil rights, many climate change solutions. So it is at best, and then the other thing I would say is that people think of it, we, we call it a fast track, but it's actually an extremely complicated process. And if you go through it, no one has ever passed anything as big as what's being contemplated now through reconciliation. So if you go down this path, you run the risk of, of walking right into a quagmire that could take 
two or three months to get this massive package to comply with all these really complicated rules. And you could find yourself in March or April not having passed anything and kind of wishing that you just sort of addressed the filibuster conversation head on. So it's it can work, but a lot of the coverage of it sort of makes it sound like it's, oh, it's super easy. You just use reconciliation and that's not how it's going to work in practice. So talk to me about thinking big. I, I was watching Bernie Sanders on the Sunday shows yesterday and he was talking about how he said basically, you know, Democrats have t- a sort of two-year window yes. to get everything done. Can we talk about, could they get rid of the filibuster? They absolutely can. I mean, it's, it's, it's a funny conversation. That? Well, it's actually very easy once you have the votes. You just, you, you essentially what you do, you ask the person who's presiding the parliament, who is the, they're called the, the chair, the presiding officer, you ask them, how many votes does it take to do this procedural step called cloture? Um, I won't get into the weeds here, but basically, before the bill gets a vote for passage, it needs to. You need to end debate the debate period on the on the bill, and that's that's the hurdle where everything dies now. That, that didn't used to be a thing. It didn't used to take sixty votes to to clear that threshold of ending debate, but now it does. And so when bills are dying on 60 votes, they're not dying on final passage, they're dying on because they can't clear that intermediary hurdle. So the way you get rid of it is, this sounds silly, but it actually is the way it works. You ask the parliamentarian who's in the, you know, the person who's at the presiding officer's chair, how many votes does it take to perform this procedural step of ending debate? They read you back the rules and say it takes 60 votes. Then you just have a vote. And if you have a majority that says, no, it doesn't, it doesn't anymore. And it's as simple as that. The, the principle, oh, wow. yeah, and what it, what it is, is it, it, you know, the Senate is an evolving body and it's, it is supposed to reflect the, the wisdom of the body itself. And so a majority of the senators in the body is taken to embody that, that wisdom. And so if, a, if 51 senators say, we are changing our rules now, the rules change. Um, so it's, it's not functionally hard. Um, what's hard is getting the votes. Right. And, you know, even that's, you know, I, I think probably not as hard as it's cracked up to be because- Do you think they could get the votes? I do. I think that it's really all about President Biden deciding that he wants them. But then Biden still can't have his fingerprints on it because he promised he wouldn't do it. Well, I think that he needs to build up to it. I think that that he can he has unique credibility here. And in a lot of ways, you know, I think it's it's good that he's the one who could do it because no one will doubt if, if Biden comes to the country and he comes to the Democratic senators and says, you guys, I tried everything. You know me. You know that if there was any way to advance this stuff through any other means, through bipartisan, you know, groups, whatever, I would do it. But there's just no other way. He has the credibility to say that. And, and I think people will believe him. And honestly, Honestly, you know, it's also just a just sort of a, a very pragmatic situation where he just <laughs> is going to say, "Look, guys, the success of my entire administration hinges on this. If we don't do this, I'm not. We're not going to pass anything. And this two-year window that Senator Sanders, I think, accurately described, is going to close. We're not going to pass any of the major things that we need to fix this country." And Republicans could easily slide back into the majorities in the next midterms because Democrats' majorities are so small right now, thereby slamming the window shut. So I need you guys to do this with me. You know, if there's any other way, I could, I would have done it, but this is what needs to happen. I feel like a lot of the more scared Democrats in the world are like, oh my God, abolishing the filibuster sounds so scary. And then we're breaking norms like Trump did. What about a like smooth calculation of saying, okay, the filibuster still exists, but it's 53 votes and we have to get Romney and Murkowski, let's say, on it. Is that something that's possible, the rules, or does it have to be 60? 
Yeah, and I want to talk about this because I I, I want to to help people get over their fears. <laughs> and look, you you can write the rules any way you want. It, once the rules are in place, you know they're hard to change unless you have fifty one votes. But like I said, it's it's an evolving institution, and so if the Senate says you know Wednesday is Friday and and the sky is green, then mm-hmm. that's that's what the Senate thinks. Um, it goes entirely by it's like a you know like like writing code or something. It's it's goes entirely by what the body says is true. So yes, if if they decide. To, to come down in increments, they could do that. It gets a little complicated to, to sort of just, if you think of it in terms of like writing a rule, it's different in every situation. So it's complicated. You can't say, you know, you need these specific senators to do it, but there are ways you can get creative if people are uncomfortable with getting rid of it entirely. I also think, you know, restoring the talking filibuster would be a reasonable way to do this. Can you explain what that is? Sure. I mean, this is, this is you know, this is the Jimmy Stewart, you know, use it or lose it kind of deal where if you want to, block a bill, once it's ready and has majority support, you have to go to the floor and hold it. And, you know, you can get some friends and you can pass the baton back and forth, but you actually have to go and explain to the American people why you're blocking this bill. And, you know, that's that was what the Senate was supposed to do in the framers' original vision. It wasn't supposed to allow a minority, a numerical minority, to block a bill. It was supposed to allow a numerical minority to have a say in the process, to make their voice heard, and, you know, debate for a long time, like weeks, you know, maybe a month or two, like have at it, but not be able to block it ultimately once that bill had achieved majority support. And so the talk filibuster is, you know, physically using that platform of the Senate floor to draw attention to whatever it is that you oppose in this bill. And if you can use your persuasive powers and, and the platform of the Senate floor, it's a massive platform to convince people to come around to your side, more power to you, you know, go for it. I, I fully believe in all of that and as a, the purpose of the Senate. The short answer is there, there's some incremental reforms that I think would be appropriate. But ultimately, I think what you have to do is you have to get to a place where a majority of the Senate can bring a debate to a close within a reasonable amount of time, not, you know, a couple of hours, you know, weeks, something in that range, but but within a reasonable amount of time. Now, my question is, it feels like, and I know a lot of our listeners worry about this and, and feel this way, that Democrats are just constantly getting played by Mitch McConnell at every point. What can they do to not have that happen? Well, not not to be a, a, a broken record here, <laughs> this is this is part of what needs to happen. And the reason is, you know, Mitch McConnell is extremely crafty. I don't want to take anything away from him. You know, I think in the book, I try to be very fair to him and try to, you know, I focus more on explaining what makes him tick, um, why he does what he does, and then just trying to, you know, take him down. You know, he's very smart. The thing is, though, he's playing on a playing field that is heavily tilted in his favor. You know, it's much easier for Republicans to win the Senate majority because, you know, they come from from these monolithically white states with low populations. They don't need to represent a majority of the American people to hold a, cha- a majority of the chamber. They have, 50, they have 50 seats right now, and those 50 seats represent 43% of the American population. You know, there's voter suppression. There's all these things that make it easier for them to actually win. Right. And there's Dakotas or two states. I mean, it's ridiculous. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, so, so and then there's, and then there's the filibuster. You know, it, it, it works for him more than Democrats for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, look, conservatives, by the nature of their party and what they're trying to achieve, benefit more than liberals from being able to obstruct. 
they're the William F. Buckley party that stands athwart history yelling stop. Progressives are the side that want to implement big changes. You know, this isn't always true in every instance, and obviously there are things conservatives want to pass, but fundamentally it's it's a it's a fundamental distinction that shows why obstruction works better for them. By leaving the filibuster in place, Democrats are increasing the chances that they continue to get played by McConnell. I mean, I, I thought it was interesting. I just finished President Obama's memoir, and he's very pointed about the filibuster. And at one point, he says that that he regrets that he didn't rally Democrats at the very beginning of his administration to get rid of the filibuster so that they could pass big things. I mean, by leaving in place, we are allowing Mitch McConnell to own us more than need be. The other thing I, I, I'll bring it up, you know, which is, you know, won't Republicans use it against us once we're out of power? And won't you have this whiplash effect? And I think there are two answers to that. One is, if you don't go nuclear now, you know, and therefore don't pass as many things as we could in the hopes that you will get forbearance from Mitch McConnell when they're back in power. <laughs> I got another thing coming. I think that, you yeah. know, he would love to see us pass fewer major bills, including democracy forms that will help tilt the electoral playing field back in our direction and things like D.C. statehood and Puerto Rico statehood. Mm-hmm. He would love to see us not do those things, you know, let him filibuster us for the next two years. And then when he takes power, the minute it's in his interest, he will get rid of the filibuster himself. And so I think that, you know, we have power now. We're not talking about smashing, you know, norms. This, this is something that has been done repeatedly throughout the course of Senate history. It has changed its own rules. It has used this exact procedure uh, 17 times to change its own rules. And, and in fact, I would argue, as I argue in the book, that this isn't a radical departure. This is actually a restoration because the Senate was invented as a majority rule institution. It operated as a majority rule institution for 200 years, uh, and the filibuster was was not a major part of it until very recently. Thank you, Adam. Bye. Thank you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Let's face it. After a night with drinks, I don't bounce back the next day like I used to. I have to make a choice. I can either have a great night or... A great next day. That is until I found Zbiotics. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works: when you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. 
Just remember to make Seabiotics your first drink of the night. Drink responsibly and you'll feel your best tomorrow. So I first gave Zbiotics to try when I was having an existential crisis at a Dave and Buster's. I drank it before my first dangerous waters punch and you wouldn't believe how on top of my game, no pun intended, I felt the very next morning. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. There's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Go to zbiotics.com slash abnormal to get 15% off your first order when you use abnormal at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash abnormal and use the code abnormal at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Hey folks, if you haven't heard, every single week we do a special bonus episode for Beast Inside, the Daily Beast membership program. Sometimes we interview senators like Cory Booker, or the folks who explain what's happening behind the scenes in media, like Jim Acosta or Soledad O'Brien. Sometimes we just have fun and talk to our favorite comedians and actors like Busy Phillips or Billy Eichner. And sometimes it's just Molly and I shooting the shit. You can get all of our episodes in your favorite podcast app of choice by becoming a Beast Inside member, where you'll support the Beast's fearless journalism, as well as getting full access to podcasts and articles. To become a member, head to newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. That's newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. As you know, America, there's a mandatory segment on this show every single episode, and it's called Fuck That Guy. And today's Fuck That Guy, in my mind, are the Trump administration staffers who are now out searching for jobs. These are not the, like, GS7 guys at the Labor Department. These are the people that were with Trump till the very end. Looking at you, Mark Meadows. Looking at you, Hope Hicks. All these other people who managed to cling to power, hoping against hope until the very end that they would be the one exception to the everything Trump touches dies rule. Y'all waited around, you never spoke up, you knew what he was doing. Even when it got to the point where he was fomenting a violent revolution in the streets of Washington, D.C., you still stuck around, and now you're surprised you can't get a job. Well, my message to you is, of course, the eternal rule of everything Trump touches the dies has now applied to you, and also, fuck you guys. Is this a case of having fucked around and found out? They both fucked around and found out. They both bought the ticket and took the ride. <laughs> I'm just setting you up for all of this. I love you for that. I know. I'm My fuck that guy today is a little doll-like fellow. He never uh, wears a jacket. A wee lad from Ohio, perhaps? He's, like, good at ignoring crimes. A sort of a blind sexual assault leprechaun? I'm wrestling with his name... It's Mark Meadows. Uh, <laughs> it's not Mark Meadows. This is like the third Mark Meadows wrestling joke in this episode. Can we, how many, is there like a cap Because on it's that? not Mark Meadows, it's Jim Jordan. Oh, no, it's Mark Meadows. Oh, that's right, it's Jim Jordan. You're right. <laughs> Jim Jordan, not Mark Meadows. Thank you. Mark, <laughs> Jim Jordan makes Mark Meadows look smart. <laughs> we did have Michael Cohen on this podcast, and he said Mark Meadows is the dumbest person he's ever met. I can tell you from uh, knowledge, experience, and interaction that Mark Meadows is dumber than a sack of hammers. So is he dumber than Jim Jordan? Yes. Oh, listen, Jim Jordan has a kind of wily animal cunning about him where, you know, he 
likes to play a role and screeches a lot. And so he knows how to perform a little better. Meadows is sort of hapless. <laughs> oh, wow. He's a Devin Nunez short of a Matt Gates. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we'll wrap up this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking with smart folks in The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Molly Jongfast, and he's at the Rick Wilson. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.